0: Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. At a time when our gardens, large and small, often feel more important than ever, I think our focus on exactly what our gardens contain and consist of is also more important than ever. In this second and a three-part celebration of gardens that offer back more than they consume, I am pleased to be speaking today with Owen Wormser, based in Western Massachusetts. Owen is the founder of Abound Design, which provides design and consulting for regenerative sustainability focused landscapes. He is also the co-founder with traditional and clinical herbalist Chris Morano of the nonprofit Local Harmony, focused on encouraging and creating community-driven regeneration. Finally, Owen is also the author of a new book entitled Lawns into Meadows, Growing a Regenerative Landscape, out now from Stone Pier Press. Owen, I am so pleased to be speaking with you today. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm excited to be here.
0: You know, if I were to ask you, and and, and I think there's a lot to work with in what I just described as this uh, beautiful suite of things you are involved with in your life. But if I were to ask you to distill that all down, Owen, into an essential mission statement for you and your own personal gardening practice in this world at this exact time in your life, what would that be?
1: It would be a connection to the natural world, a connection to the landscape and trying to facilitate that both for myself and my clients, and really anyone else that I can help with in that regard.
0: You can see that in all of the things that you are doing. Um, And so before we dive into that, let's go back and let's have you share with listeners some of your early life sort of plant story and some of the people and places and plants that grew you into a man for whom this would be your calling.
1: So... My desire to connect people to the landscape and help them connect to nature really comes out of, in many ways, what is a very different, but also privileged, in my opinion, um, upbringing, because I grew up really close to the natural world. And my parents moved to central Maine in the early 70s, and they were part of the Back to the Land movement. And we lived in a house without electricity a half mile from our nearest neighbor and it was in a pretty rural area there weren't many people around my parents gardened pretty seriously they grew a lot of our food and my mother was also a serious perennial gardener as well so i was around gardening and i was also around nature and fortunately that suited me because i have a strong sort of interest in in plants and nature and i, I didn't really understand the degree to which that was the case when I was a kid. Um, but as I got older, and I went to school um, for landscape architecture for my undergraduate degree, you know, I realized more and more how much um, my background really was suitable for my interest and for what I wanted to do. And so I've really been kind of focusing on how to translate that um, and bring that out into the world more.
0: It's interesting, right? Because as someone who also grew up with very plant-based parents, uh, we were not off-grid. So we didn't, I think my parents were just enough older than your parents that uh, they didn't do that. But we we had a cabin that we went to where my father, who is a wildlife biologist, uh, and it was completely off-grid, same description. So I, I found myself really like hearkening back to this cabin on the western slope of Colorado where we spent a lot of time when I was little. And, um, you know, that sense of living with the, um, you know, the circadian rhythm of a day and that annual rhythm of the seasons based on what, when light is available, when heat is available, when, you know, when it's too hot, all of these things and, and how grounded, uh, you are when you're allowed to actually notice them. And I think we all notice them, right? Even even if we are, uh, if we have electricity, if we have air conditioning, if we have a running toilet in our house, we we still notice them. But we are not forced to reckon with them or engage with them at that survival level that that being um, off grid is. And that's one of these great things that our gardens bring to us. I think is this engagement with our own life rhythms and survival, even if it's in momentary glimpses through the course of a day or a week or a season.
1: Absolutely. And I think we crave that connection, whether mm. we know it or not. And I think a lot of the difficulties of modern times are are growing out of that sort of separation that are part of our lives. And the, the convenience and comfort that we've created in modern times is is obviously a very big deal and important because it's given us health and, you know, safety and warmth and all of these things that were very difficult to come by in the past, but it's been at the expense of that connection in a lot of cases, and it's really important for those of us that are aware of it that we invite that connection back into our lives because it's sustaining and, and we need it, and like you mentioned, the circadian rhythms those aspects of nature that are just there. They're always there. It doesn't matter where you live. You can access them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In your introduction, you have a a wonderful sort of insight retrospectively of that that did suit you as a boy, but that that isn't necessary. Like we can actually make great strides in our ability to live more lightly, on our planet and with our planet, without having to make all of those sacrifices. But in this sort of lovely Buddhist kind of statement, you say there is a, there is a middle path that we can certainly cleave to far more than our convenience culture has encouraged us to do this last 50 years or so. And one of the things that's also interesting to me, Owen, is that you are not the first person that I have interviewed of your age range who is coming full circle from parents in the 70s who took them off grid. And so one of the things that gave me hope in reading your story is that if there are two of you, there are probably, you know, 250 of you. And if you all are out there making this same kind of conclusive Uh, understanding or coming to this conclusive understanding of what that childhood brought to you and what you can do with it going forward to help other people, then that's quite a nice little cohort of people making the world uh, a better place on this potential middle path. So let's, let's keep back in Maine. Give us an anecdote of of what what those woods were like or what plants you might have made friends with at that time that maybe still speak to you and what you're doing today with this real focus on regenerative landscapes for everybody wherever they might live.
1: I think i I came to sort of have relationships with plants and I didn't think of it consciously. they were just there and they would appear. And I would, in some cases, be really excited or interested as a kid. Um, the spring ephemeral plants in particular, trout lilies, trilliums, but also um, pink moccasin flowers, what get called pink lady slippers. Those were a plant I was just amazed by. And it's one of those things that when you're a kid, you don't you don't necessarily, think of these things, you're just sort of drawn to them. and they're sort of eye candy in a way. So there was just that part of of the sort of wonder of it all. after a winter, these colors start to appear. So those, those spring plants were were something that really definitely pulled me in. But then just the woods in general um, was something that I was enamored with. And as a kid I was you know, to be fair, also somewhat intimidated and scared of it in certain ways but I also love to spend a lot of time there and there's a lot of hemlocks and a lot of pines um, and also beech trees and red maples so it's a mixed mixed far- forest around there um, but I just love the the feel of being in the woods I'm one of those people that uh, sort of a wooded uh, feeling uh, or a wooded environment suits me best and when I'm in like wide open spaces I feel you know, really exposed. So I enjoyed being there. and um that was my playground. and I'd climb the trees and ride my bike around. and basically it was just taking it all in um, without really knowing that I was taking it all in. I was just living my life as a kid,
0: yeah and and that is, um, as we now know, looking back on it, it was such a gift, and it was such a gift to not have to think of it as a gift at the time. and I I want to explore a little bit what you were just saying about that fear that you had sometimes, that there was that edge to it, which I think is such an important seam, because in some ways, that fear is what led us as humans, you know, 150 years ago, 250 years ago, to battle and destroy. But right now, that fear is also... I think an important respect that puts us in real and reality-based relationship with nature, as opposed to it being this idealized, um, oh, it's so pretty. I just love it. I'm going to meditate. Like This is a real force that we are engaging with, and it needs to be approached with love and respect,
1: right? Yeah. I like how you how you said that and there are so many facets to nature and i i think that that humility um that we we can have when we approach it um is is a really natural thing because nature is all powerful in the end and we forget that um but when a cold snap hits texas or whatever happens people remember who's boss and it's good to be sort of aware of that and respectful but at the same time I think a lot of our culture's fear including my own um, around nature comes from a lack of understanding. My my parents moved to the country and although they they loved it there was a certain sort of lack of um, perspective that isn't unusual I think even for people who grew up in the country and And it's sort of a nuanced understanding of how nature actually works. And that's something that's pretty absent in our culture. And without that understanding, nature seems really sort of random or potentially mysterious and scary. Because we don't know sort of what could happen, and so it's an in- interesting thing that I've thought about um, retrospectively, where it's where it's sort of like, oh, if I had known more about how predators work and, you know, just sort of life in the woods, I would have had a different perspective.
0: Well, and not to go too quantum gardening on us, but it strikes me that you know, of course nature is not other than us. We are part of nature. And so some of that lack of understanding and that fear or anxiety is something that we are, we are mirroring in terms of our understanding of ourselves and our place here and what our own capacity for destruction or regeneration could be our, our own capacity for rational relationship and engagement versus you know, mindless or thoughtless or dangerous engagement, um, and that if we were to know that line better for ourselves, or at least acknowledge it better for ourselves, right? Maybe we would do less destruction. Owen,
1: absolutely. I think that's really an important point you you made. And as I've become an adult and spent time in nature over the last couple of decades, what I've come to realize in my own personal experience is very subjective, but it 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 feels very strong in my my is that nature wants to have rapport with us that there is rapport that we are part of it and that that connection is never actually severed it's only our perspective that makes it seem that way
0: so you are you're in the woods and you have these lovely you know sort of emotional life Take us from there. Progress us along your your life um, path that gets you to where you are now.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I went to public school in Maine through eighth grade. And in very rural Maine, the school systems are pretty limited in terms of um, what they can offer and it's poorly funded. And um, my parents suggested that I apply to boarding schools, to private schools, and I actually... um, For high school, you mean, yeah. For for high school, Mm -hmm. yeah, and I got into a number of private schools and got some scholarship money, and I ended up going to boarding school in Boston at Milton Academy for four years, which was a really formative part of my life because I got, ultimately, a really excellent education that I wouldn't have gotten in high school in the same way. And um, it gave me a chance to kind of think about things um, at a younger age. And by the time I was ready for college, I knew I wanted to do something with the landscape. And the thing that made the most sense was studying landscape architecture. And that's what I went and did um, for four years. I got a degree through University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And the whole time that I was sort of setting out to do this, I I knew on, on some level, and a lot of it was pretty conscious, although it was it was a difficult thing to figure out. I knew I was trying to figure out basically how to bridge that gap between my own personal experience growing up and that connection that I had and the sort of greater world. Part of me knew that I could just go back and live in a cabin in the woods and be content, um, but part of me really wanted to see if that sort of perspective could be shared or or brought out into the world in a, in a larger sense. And so the landscape architecture degree gave me some skills and perspective on how to help people do that. And I've been um, practicing landscape design build with uh, my own practice, the business that I started um, and have been, I've been doing this for two decades now. So we've been helping individual clients, sometimes institutions and nonprofits really make that connection between their lives and the landscape. And design is a big part of that. Horticulture is an enormous part of that. Um, but really what's behind it is that, that desire to try to figure out how to help people sort of re, um, reconnect with the natural world.
0: This is Cultivating Place. Owen Wormser is a regenerative landscape designer and activist in western Massachusetts. In his book, Lawns into Meadows, he supports his lifelong understanding that the world naturally tends towards abundance. In his experience, the rich life that results from turning irrigated mown turf grass into the diversity of a meadow is the perfect illustration of just this. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society, of which I have been a happy member most of my adult life. The AHS is about to turn 100, but let me assure you, its quality horticultural information has never been more relevant. The American Horticultural Society integrates science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy in this gardening world through its programs, Reciprocal Admissions at Public Gardens, and its journal, The American Gardener. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. So for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward cp. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the things that I really love about having this conversation with Owen in this time is that in wake of 2020, especially, and following some of my previous interviews with the likes of Robin Wall Kimmerer, Doug Talamy, Lorena Gorbett, Kiss the Ground, Edwina von Gaal, Laura Ikassitia, The Plant Me a Rainbow Ladies, or Leslie Bennett of Pinehouse Edibles. I have gotten so many, many questions along the lines of, where can I find an ecological landscape designer? Where can I find this book or this resource? Where can I find a nursery like this? And that acted on curiosity in those questions is a great sign. When I was more infrequently asked these questions 18 months ago and beyond, the answers were there. The solutions and answers have always been there, but they were a little harder to find or see. Now, these networks are reaching a tipping point in their building, and they are much, much more visible. And that is a great source of hope, a beacon in an otherwise often murky world. We're back now to our conversation with Owen Wormser, founder of Abound Regenerative Landscape Design based in Leverett, Mass. As we come back, Owen is sharing the catalysts that led him to his current work.
1: It's really been an ongoing conversation that I've been exploring with my clients because it took a while for me to figure out how to do what I'm doing because I'm working with plants and really understanding plants doesn't happen overnight. So it took a good five years before I started to feel competent, I guess, in that regard. And the whole time though, I was learning and talking to my clients and figuring out how to sort of relate to the landscape and to also to people um, around that specifically. So over the subsequent Um, time you know leading us to now it's a conversation that conversation with clients has been ongoing and it's really important because i'm i'm trying to give people something that's theirs i'm not i'm I'm creating something that in the end is bought and sold it's a for-profit business but it's really important to me that it's not a commodity and That they understand why it's there and why the details are there and how to take care of it and even if they're not the ones taking care of it that they understand what needs to happen and why it's happening and so I go to really great lengths to educate my clients and explain to them what I'm doing and also to make the design process really transparent and to include them as collaborators in that in that process and um, that has repeatedly encouraged me to go deeper into that approach because it routinely leads to really effective designs that, in the sense that I'm able to give people what they want and they understand what it is and they're able to connect with it. So that's been really encouraging. And there's a lot of joy that I derive from that. And that in many ways has driven me towards the uh, idea behind some of my nonprofit work, which is really expanding that, that approach and sort of that desire to connect people to the landscape to the public and to a wider audience. And so I've done a number of projects over the years, Even before I started a nonprofit, where there were community-driven projects where volunteers were planting, Um, one was at a co-op in the area where I live, a a natural foods co-op, and the parking lot was planted entirely by volunteers. And I was able to get a couple hundred, about five hundred native perennials donated to the project, and so we were able to beautify this parking lot in a way that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And people were so happy to be part of it in a way that has really inspired me and and kind of um you know moved me forward with some of the work that I'm doing in that arena on that nonprofit side of things
0: yeah oh, that's great what made you decide to take on the project of the meadow work and the new book lawns into Meadows and why the focus on this instead of you know, regenerative or sustainable whole garden design, Owen. First of all, walk me through that decision. And then let's get into the book, uh, because I don't want to give it short shrift. And um, I especially loved, really loved your introduction on the generosity of, of Meadows. So.
1: You know, the opportunity arose for me to write this book specifically, and the publisher was looking for someone to do that, and my name came up, and um, it was a really incredible opportunity. It's something that I feel really strongly about, and um, it felt like it was the right time for someone to write that book, and it was something I had to decide very quickly, um, and I... I jumped on it and I, it was my first book. So it was a little bit intimidating to just say, okay, I'm going to write a book. And I had a really relatively short period of time to make it happen. And so speaking
0: um, of generous, right? Publishers are great about that. You have one year or less, right?
1: It was four months in this case, basically (laughs) to to research it and organize it and write it and edit it and everything. So um, fortunately I was able to devote my entire life to that during that stretch of time, but uh, it was an incredible opportunity. And I think it's it's something that's an outgrowth of what you were kind of pointing to um, in regard to the timeline that we're sort of experiencing that's unfolding that in 2020, there was an, an enormous shift in some way regarding people's interest and sort of sense of responsibility for their landscapes. Um, something happened. I mean, I've been having these conversations for two decades, a little bit more, and people are sort of ready to do what they can do because they realize that we're really headed in the wrong direction in so many ways. And our yards are one of the places where we really have the power to change things. You can go out there and you can get rid of some of your lawn. And so to be able to try to, to have an opportunity to encourage people, explain to people, and sort of give people permission, um, how to do that, and that they can do that was something that um, seemed too good to be true to me. So I jumped on it. And um, that's really what the book is about, because it's a how to. um, But it's also about that sort of like, yeah, you can you can just go do this.
0: And it really does make this wonderful complement to, um, for instance, Doug Tallamy's book, uh, you know, Nature's Best Hope, uh, in, in encouraging people to try and dedicate uh, a third or two thirds of of their established landscape to native plants. And so this is a wonderful, like, step by step, methodical manual on how to do this effectively, and even how to care for it over time, which I think is one of the great um, needs and gaps in the literature available to people is, you know, they're told to put in native plants. They do it in a year. They look kind of sad and weedy because of whatever. And they're, you know, they're thinking, wait, you told me this was low maintenance. What, what happened? And, um, so this, you know, ongoing, uh, leveling up of our understanding and expectations of what a native plant both looks like and needs and, um, and requires is I think really important at this moment in time so that we set people up for success. Otherwise they're going to go right back to a lawn or, you know, a, a literally a front, you know, hell strip of gravel instead of useful, beautiful carbon sequestering pollinator feeding plants, right?
1: Absolutely. And one thing that I suggest for people who might be coming to this anew and really have very little perspective on planting or dealing with plants is that you can do some of this in your backyard, or you can do a small portion of your yard first and see how it goes and sort of learn the ropes. But Ultimately, um, you know the the point is that we can engage and we can learn how to do this, and it it can seem intimidating, but the book is really meant to decipher that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now go into just literally walk us through the table of contents, and tell us maybe who is your target audience does this work for the northeast as well as for the southeast as well as for the west because you know the word meadow conjures up certain things for people
1: yeah absolutely so the the target audience is really anywhere in north america that gets 20 inches of rain or more and it's really somewhere in that ballpark could be maybe 25 inches but That really amounts to most places east of the Rockies and pockets of the West that get enough rainfall. Places like the Southwest and really arid parts of the Great Basin, California, places like that, they can't really support meadows um, because meadows really um, require a certain type of species, grasses especially and it's harder for them to grow in really arid climates. But that said, in California and the the West Coast, even with really small amounts of rainfall, if you use native plants and they're planted properly, then meadows do quite well as well. There's a lot of grassland that was natural in California, or at least um, cultivated by um, Native Americans through the use of fire. So really, the book applies to most regions in the country. And the book really gets into um, immediately, it starts focusing on just how we got into a situation where there's lawns everywhere. There's an area about the size of Washington State that is mowed turf in the United States. And I explain what that means environmentally. And I'm not going to get into all the details um, right now. But even as someone who already knew that it was a, a bad situation, my jaw is on the ground in terms of how impactful lawns are in a negative sense. The book then gets into what meadows can offer. And meadows are really sort of the antithesis of lawns in that their ecological footprint is beneficial. Um, they're able to store carbon instead of using up massive amounts of carbon. They're very low-maintenance. They don't require water. They don't require fertilizer. So they're really the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to lawns.
0: Yeah. And I want to point out, again, the fact that I completely agree with you. There are regions of our entire country that are very appropriate for meadows. And even if you don't live in one of those regions, there are meadow-like environments that are seasonal, that are appropriate. But that environmental footprint of an irrigated fertilized lawn, if it looks terrible in the Northeast, it looks exponentially worse in the West where no irrigated, let alone turf grass environment is suited for, for where we live for most of the year. And so, you know, I I think I just want to reiterate that because we hear it all the time right? And, and maybe we're in an echo chamber here on that, but that's okay. Because I think if we don't keep reminding ourselves of why this is a terrible standard that we have set for the American landscape, then we won't see progress on this. And I still look down my Northern California suburban street and 10 out of, no, 15 out of the 20 front lawns I can see are still irrigated turf grass. And so we still have a long ways to go to um, move that needle. And I, I think we just have to keep, keep trying, keep talking about it, and keep reminding us why we need that needle moved. Um, and now we're going to go into your next section of the book.
1: And even before that, I just want to, I guess, kind of back you up a little bit in regard to some of the information that I found out, because you're right. And we're still in a situation where lawns are considered normal, and they're everywhere. And so here's here's a couple things to think about. The EPA is saying that 17 million gallons of gasoline are spilled every year, filling lawnmowers. That's about the same Ah. amount of oil that spilled out of the Exxon Valdez. And that's not even mowing lawns. So when you run a commercial mower, like the ones that you see mowing crews use for an hour, that's the equivalent of driving a 2017 Toyota Camry 300 miles. Wow. So the statistics just go on from there because the amount of chemical fertilizers that end up in the, Ecosystem and what they do to pets and cancer and there's just this incredibly long list of very grave, significant impacts that lawns have. So I just wanted to underscore that since you um, called attention to that, it's it's important, very yeah, important.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And yeah, meadows happily offer something that's very different and it's something that works with nature instead of. Instead of something that fights against it.
0: This is Cultivating Place. Owen Wormser is the founder of Abound, regenerative landscape designers in Western Massachusetts. An activist working to support balance in our world, Owen is also the co founder of the nonprofit Local Harmony, focused on encouraging and creating community driven regeneration. Owen's story is the second in a three-week series here on Cultivating Place, celebrating gardens that contribute back more than they consume from the world around them. We'll be right back for more from Owen. Stay with us. Hey, so thinking out loud this week, I really want to continue with my thoughts from the previous break with a little story story of invisible connection becoming visible in the hopes that this bolsters even a little each of your beliefs in the power of you and your garden to help meet the challenges we are all most worried about. I often get really generous emails about what Cultivating Place or my writing or my talks mean to people, how they've changed their thinking, improved their outlook, doubled down on their desire to help, held them through their grief, which once processed, they can then move on to resume action. And I am always humbled by every one of these communications. Recently, I had one of these experiences. I was actually in the hospital on my most recent visit to my dad, helping with his health care. And I got an email from a woman who told me that she too was a writer, that she had started her own gardening journey just recently, and that that journey had truly changed her life and sense of calling, and what it is she can and should give during her time on this planet. Those were her words. And she said, this is due in no small part to your podcast, your incredibly thoughtful interviews, and your books, which I treasure. She went on to say she had recently completed a major project, and that with her earnings, she had some money she wanted to give. And she wanted to very specifically invest this money in Indigenous-led land work. She was talking in the tens of thousands of dollars. And she asked me for my thoughts on where I would like to see the funds invested. And believe me, I got her my list of suggestions as fast as I could muster them, and I thanked her profusely for being a person who puts their money and their action where their hopes are. I know many days it doesn't seem like it. On some days, I don't even know if anyone is listening to my podcast, let alone seeing my garden and being lifted by it. But on days when our own power to affect change makes itself visible, heck, we have to trust that. We have to hold on to it and we have to trust it. Whether it's the people in your book club, in your garden club, the energy and attitude you send your kids out into the day with, Whether it's sharing a few seeds or that one too many zucchini, sharing $10 or 10,000 with work and people you believe in, everything we do makes a difference. As gardeners, we see that our actions have both immediate force and almost as often the grace of long-term forgiveness. And both of these matter so much like a seedling moving from tender to established root systems in the groundwater and community of us, these positive networks in the garden and horticultural world of integrated, ecological, culturally respectful, acknowledging, and contributing gardens and gardeners are as vibrant and meaningful as they have ever been in my half-century lifetime and I will stake my garden life on their continued and successional thriving. I know many of you will too, and I'm so happy to be here together. We're back now to our conversation with Owen Wormser, author of Lawns into Meadows, Growing a Regenerative Landscape a manual to tap into, and an ode to the generosity of our green planet. As we come back, I have asked Owen to define some of our terms, starting with exactly what a meadow is.
1: Yeah, so a meadow is basically an area that's grasslands with flowering plants, flowering perennials in it. Um, It has to be full sun, basically, or Mm -hmm. an area that gets half of A half a day of sunlight to be a traditional meadow. And really anything that is a grassland is also a meadow. So it's one of those words that gets, there's a lot of different words that get used and basically mean the same thing, whether it's a plain or a savanna or a prairie, they're very similar Meadow is sort of at the center of that Venn diagram where it's a grassland with perennial plants that grow in it, free of woody plants. Annuals are often part of meadows, and a lot of the meadows in North America are strongly comprised of perennials. So that's what I focused on in part because that's also what creates a really low maintenance sort of approach. But really, annuals can be part of the mix too, especially in that first year or two when meadows are being established. But yeah, meadows are usually maintained by grazing or fire or a lack of rainfall because otherwise meadows are overtaken by woody plants, ultimately trees and shrubs. That's what
0: the succession wants to do, right? We all want to turn into a forest. (laughs)
1: Exactly.
0: Would you like to walk through what you mean when you say meadows store
1: carbon? Yeah, I think that's that's an important, huge aspect of this. Because, so there's a couple types of ecosystems that are incredibly effective at storing carbon. The ocean is one of them, forests are another. Um, Meadows are, grasslands are really excellent when it comes to storing carbon because what the grasses do and the meadow plants, they're taking in carbon dioxide and they're splitting it apart they're keeping that carbon like all plants do and using it in their photosynthesis process and they're creating carbons and sugars and that gets sent down in a lot of cases to the roots where there's the plants have symbiotic relationships with microbes and mycorrhizae and they basically swap these carbons and sugars for other nutrients their minerals that they need from from these other organisms so the plants create this exchange But what happens is that carbon goes into these other organisms and eventually they die and that that carbon stays in the soil and or the roots eventually die of the plants which in the carbon that is um, making those up also stays in the soil because meadow plants are often really deep rooted they can be like you know 10-15 feet down into the ground is is not an unusual depth they can Bring an enormous amount of carbon into the soil. So it's something that has been studied some, and it's been shown that there are very significant amounts of carbon that can be parked in soil. But it could be studied more because my suspicion is um, that it's actually that meadows are even more effective than we know. Because usually the depth studies of soil range in the 12 inch range, like that top foot of soil. So this is something that people can do in their own yards. And rather than putting carbon into the atmosphere by running a lawnmower and using nitrogen fertilizer on a lawn, you can actually be sinking carbon into your yard.
0: Right. Which is really, I mean, again, if we think about the just the small things we can do to help, to think of your garden not only as this beautiful sanctuary for you and and animals that you love or people you love, but to think of it as a little machine helping to offset the carbon non-neutral things we do in our life like drive our cars that is so that's a powerful form of agency
1: it is and we we have access to that that area that is the size of washington state that's mowed turf in this in this country you know some of it is valuable some of it gets used people play games on it sometimes lawn is good for walkways, but the vast majority of that is never used. And it has such a detrimental effect. And you could be doing something that's the complete opposite of that. And it can seem daunting, like, oh, what's the big deal if I turn my small little yard into, you know, half of it into a meadow? Well, it's the exact same way that we ended up with an area the size of Washington State as mowed turf that's how we're gonna get back to something that's actually sustainable and healthy.
0: So is this for every size home, Owen, or is this only for homes that have a whole lot of
1: land? Really, you could create the sort of effect of a meadow in something as small as a container. If If certain plants are made available, pollinators will find them so even if you live in the city and you have a rooftop or a balcony or something like that you can put out a container with some of the plants that are mentioned in the book or other meadow plants and insects and pollinators will find them but really any type of space can work it could be anything from abandoned lots to institutional settings but the book primarily is focused on residential yards because that's where the vast majority of lawn is. And it's also something that most of us have jurisdiction over and, and can just go out and change.
0: Yeah. So I love the way it is is very intuitively uh, outlined here. You You give us instructions on how to figure out the the size and appropriateness of our site, the hardiness zone we're in, our soil type. You go to some design plans um, with both sample designs and just some concepts around basic good design. You have a great encyclopedia of plants that you would like to see in the mix. There are some native to Middle, east, west uh, of our country, um, all good plants, all, as far as I can see looking down this, really available in the industry, which is one of the great um, obstacles sometimes for people, especially as they're making the transition into an interesting native plant uh, garden. And then you actually walk us through exactly how to do it, like how to, how to kill your lawn, how to uh, get rid of the weediness, and then this upkeep going forward. What is the moment in here that is the hardest and the place where you are worried most people could like abandon the
1: project? I think the hardest part a lot of time is the prep and getting the lawn out. Um, it can yeah. take...
0: They're tenacious, aren't they? For over-maintained things, they are hard to kill actually. It's true.
1: And they can take a little while to kill organically. And even when people go another route, they don't, a lot of times it takes a little while. And so there's that transition period and sometimes people get impatient. Um, And it's really important that the lawn or any existing vegetation's out of the picture and that the soil is well-prepared so that what comes next can establish.
0: You also walk through, which I like this, um, the planting guide, so that you give some really nice instructions on starting from seed, starting plugs, If you were to recommend to somebody like me, let's say somebody in a a suburban home who has like a hell strip that they want to go ahead and dedicate to this, you know, we're talking maybe five feet across, 15 feet long, uh, would you recommend I start with seed or would you recommend I start with plugs?
1: In the book, I discuss both planting from seeds and plugs, which are basically just small perennials that come in a tray And in the situation that you're mentioning, I would encourage people to consider planting from plugs Um, in a smaller location. By small, I mean you know, 200 square feet, 300 square feet, or less. um, Plugs can be really effective, even even larger spaces, if you have the labor and budget to do them, because they give you immediate results. If plugs are planted in the spring, even especially perennial plugs then usually by midsummer you're already getting some color and they're quite full so it gives an immediate result and when you're dealing with a pu- very public location like that it can make a really big difference to just show people like hey this is a garden that's not a construction project for a year um, and when you're going when you're starting from seed it can take longer and sometimes People don't know what's going on, or it's just a little bit different that way.
0: Right. And I think, you know, one of the things I would point out as well is that the idea of, of planting from plugs is a, a fantastic one in that it is not the resource um, intense and waste intense uh, method that, say, one gallon plants are uh and it might be a little hard to find plugs but i think there are resources and your book certainly has good resources at the back of it for where to find plugs for your region um of both grasses and uh, flowering perennials. Uh, but the the other thing is just that starting from seed, you have more pressure issues on getting things established and getting the roots down and making sure people aren't stomping on them or they don't dry out or the birds don't eat them all. And um, But I also, would you recommend that maybe even a combination of the two is quite good because you then get this sort of staggered approach with some longer term seed Because you can get some more interesting things in seeds than in plugs, I think, sometimes. And so if you overseeded what is also plugged, what do you think about that?
1: You know, really any of those sort of permutations would work. And in the book, I I try to break down all of the potential scenarios, ranging from planting seed into turf, planting plugs into turf, you know, planting all the way to planting seeds or plugs or both into bare soil. And really, there's no right way to do it. It's all about what can get results. And so I really try to give people sort of the sort of cautionary perspective that they need to know for each of those approaches so that they can go out and do that. Um, So it depends on your situation and what you can make happen ultimately. And sometimes taking up grass, for instance, is just too much work for some people. And planting plugs directly into it is the best thing to do. Sometimes there's no budget for plugs and they can get seed and then put they can put seed directly into grass. Um, so there's a lot of different approaches that can work well, ultimately.
0: The, the best approach is to just start trying, I think, right?
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, my experience with plants has been that I learned once I engaged with them and started trying, like you're saying. And if... There's a lot of trepidation, then do something small and see what works. And maybe there's a couple species that perform really well and you learn that those are the ones that you should get more of. Um, but that step by step approach can can make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. And hopefully you fall in love with the process along the way.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's what this is about because the establishment part is kind of the most mysterious part because it's really all about matching the plants to the location and Mm -hmm. letting the site sort of be the designer in that regard because if the plants are properly matched to the soil conditions and to the moisture and the sun um, they're gonna they're gonna thrive in the long run and it takes a lot of trust to wait especially when you're working with seeds, sometimes it can take a year to three years before you really start seeing a lot of results. And you have to get to that place where the meadow establishes. And then once it does establish, they're incredibly low maintenance and easy to take care of. Um, so it's all about getting to that, to that point. And without prior experience, that can seem sometimes like a daunting process because it does sometimes, especially with seed, take time.
0: So, what are what are your greatest joys in in this work? Whether it's the nonprofit work, whether it's your own home garden, whether it's your landscape design, whether it's engaging with people around the messages in the book, um, you know what what are your greatest joys, Owen? And and how do you measure success in this work at this time?
1: Well, as a designer, I ultimately measure my success based on how a landscape performs. You know, even if I have a happy client a year after I finished a project, I'm going back and watching to see if everything behaves the way I intended it to. And ultimately with planting meadows, that's the same, it's the same thing that my success um, is based on the plants doing well and the meadow establishing as it should. And so I really focus on, on the garden showing me sort of what is and isn't successful, because that's also how I've learned where things don't work. And, you know, my my joy ultimately is when that works, um, because it means that my relationship with those plants and my understanding it is, is sort of um, nuanced enough so that it engages and, and there's an, a result. Um, but also, my I get a lot of joy from just even having a conversation like this, and and being able to help people um, have this conversation, or just to be part of this conversation, where we as a culture um, are able to regenerate the landscape around us. But we have to figure it out, and so that's something I've been working on, and that's why the conversation aspect of it is, is so enjoyable because no one person figures this out and no one person solves our problems. It's, it's a collective effort here. And knowing that there are people out there reading my book and experimenting with Meadows and learning how to do this is um, an enormous pleasure for me.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been an enormous pleasure
1: to speak with you. Thanks for having me, Jennifer.
0: Owen Wormser is the founder of Abound Design, which provides design and consulting for regenerative, sustainability-focused landscapes. He is also the co-founder with traditional and clinical herbalist Chris Morano of the nonprofit Local Harmony, focused on encouraging and creating community-driven regeneration. Finally, Owen is the author of a new book entitled Lawns Into Meadows, Growing a Regenerative Landscape, Out now from Stone Pier Press. Listen in next week. We continue our series on gardens that contribute back more than they consume from the world around them when we dig into the interesting and the innovative in conversation with Rebecca McMacken, director of horticulture at New York's Brooklyn Bridge Park. 85 acres of diverse parkland created completely from scratch on abandoned shipping piers in the East River. Rebecca and her team manage this human-built landscape organically with an eye towards habitat creation for birds, butterflies, and soil microorganisms. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, and it is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. To make sure you are subscribed to the podcast, which is often a little bit different and a little bit longer than the on-air episodes, or to read more and see many images from Owen Wormser's design work and his book, Lawns into Meadows, head over to cultivatingplace.com, where every week's show notes are always to be found under the podcast tab there. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.